Welcome back to the Terra Agnostic Talks podcast. We are back after a short break of a few months and we are back at the GU Congress with a special edition of this podcast. Uh, we will record this episode here in Amsterdam during the EAU Congress and that's the big European Congress within Urology. Uh, I think it's around 10,000 people at this Congress, 10,000 an urologist uh, that will meet and talk about the urology stuff. Uh, and we will take the terragnostic temperature of the urologist by talking to key opinion leaders within this field about what they think about terragnostics entering the world of urology. I'm not here alone. I'm here with my colleague Lisa Groschi. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Gustav. Pleasure to be here on the podcast. You are new to the listeners. Uh, who are you and why? Well, I'm an MSL at Sam Nordic. I joined recently in the beginning of the year. And I actually just have a large experience, broad experience within prostate cancer from the, the clinic and within clinical research. And, uh, and now I'm hoping to adding on to Sam Nordic's portfolio within the, these areas. Is it true that one of the reasons that you jumped into the Samnordic team was the Terragnostic Talks podcast? It was actually. You know, when I was approached to join Samnordic, I did a sweep of the uh, website and I found these podcasts. And I just uh, actually, even the first episode just took me by, you know, the history of Theranostics and brought me into all corners of Theranostics. I work within immuno-oncology and within clinical oncology in urology also for many years. And I was like, this is the new thing. This is where I want to be. This is really, really interesting. Then we believe in the same thing, of course. Um, this is my first EIU Congress. You have been here before. Um, what should I expect during these days in Amsterdam? You should expect nothing less than just a joyful ride within scientific knowledge sharing with some of the best KOLs doing their presentations and one of the best, some of the best researchers presenting their research here. We will have a, urology is a large community, almost like a family. Everybody knows each other actually all around. And it's just nice to be back building up and saying hi to everybody again in person. I mean, you should be excited. Yeah. You're in for a great ride, Gustav. <laughs> cool. So, we hope to say to the listeners, follow us during these days. We will have interesting talks with some of the top QLs. Yeah, I'm looking so much forward. Hmm? Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, Ken Herman. I'm very, very pleased to be here in Amsterdam. And it's nice to be so close, huh? Yeah, we are very close. We said that it's the post-pandemic thing we can do, yeah. But I like it. I really like it. I'm happy that this is possible again. Yeah. Uh, and you came at DOC on a Urology Congress. Why are you here? So uh, the most important thing for us, obviously, is uh, uh, to, to uh, yeah, make sure that the urologists continue to be uh, f nuclear medicine friendly, to convince them that... Uh, that we need PSMA pad, how to use PSMA pad, what is actually also to prevent overuse. And obviously we also want to make sure that PSMA by ligand therapy is going to find the right place. And, and for us in Europe, I have to say that urology and the EAU is one of the most important partners, if not the most important partner. Mm. Uh, 
Like two years ago, you published an article in the Lancet Oncology Radio Terragnostics, a roadmap for the future development. Um, tell us, what did you want to highlight with that article? So the, the interesting thing is exactly, I think a week ago, the, the updated version uh, yeah. was published in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. I think it's a it's a, it's an ongoing journey. Uh, what we wanted to point out back in, in, in 2020 was already that it's a growing field. Mm. It's I think it's overall it's a platform. It's not only for prostate, it's not only for PSMA, but we need to be ready. Mm. And, and and obviously one of the things we highlighted in 2020, we highlight again now, is that the supply chain is very important. We have to handle the logistics. Mm. We need to tackle the last mile. Last mile is what I actually kind of stole from logistics, you know, to make sure that you don't only get the packages into the city, but also really get it to the door. Mm. This is something where we uh, really need to work on because uh, not only uh, in Europe, but especially also in the US, we do not have enough people who really have the experience in applying uh, large-scale uh, diagnostics. That's the second thing. And obviously the third thing, uh, which we also point out there, is that we need to continue to develop, which means mm. we need to think about new targets, new radionuclides. And something uh, I, I care about uh, more recently a lot is actually really combining, combining, so mm. really combining radiosynostics with other therapies. Yeah. And what I always like to call, and I'm going to talk about this also this afternoon, unfortunately only 10 minutes, is that we not only look for addition, additive effects, but really for the synergism, treatment synergism. Yeah. And and this actually is quite quite challenging, but yeah. also very exciting. Yeah. What could that be? Like radio sensitizers or? So of course, I mean, the, the portfolio is the same, right? Yeah. It's always yeah. the same suspects. We talk yeah. about uh, combination with uh, ARDT, we talk about immune oncology, radio sensitizers, us. Uh, uh, we call it about DNA damage repair inhibitors. We talk about uh, SBRT. Uh, so these are the ones. I probably forgot a couple of ones. Mm -hmm. uh, we can also think about tandem uh, uh, therapy, which means we use, uh, for example, different radionuclides, for example, combination of actinium and lutetium. Or yeah. we can also think about, for example, using actually uh, radionuclide therapy with two different targets. Mm. For prostate, it becomes very obvious that we have PSMA, mm. but there's also GRPR, there's mm. HK2, and there are a couple of more coming. Great, great future. Uh, as we said, we are just one step behind the future of teragnostics in urology with the entrance of PSMA PET that I think we'll talk about today at this meeting and the corresponding therapy with lutetium PSMA. Uh, are the urologists and oncologists ready for the next step? Uh, so it's a very good question. So first of all, I would not put urologists and oncologists automatically in the same bag. I, I think uh, for us and also from the whole patient flow, I think urologists are already uh, to a large degree onboarded. Yeah. yeah. So I think this is very important. It's very good for us, especially when we talk about PSMA PET imaging. Uh, I think we have uh, I, I almost full support of urology. Mm. Uh, oncology, these are really tough guys, but in a positive way. Yeah. You really need to convince them with very hard data. So we really need to come up with this perspective uh, phase three studies randomized. Even so, I have to say, and we mentioned this before, that uh, I think we see a, a, a change of awareness. So, and, and, and one of the examples our nuclear medicine field is super proud of is, for example, that when APCC, which is an outstanding conference, started in 2017, there was Stefano Fanti. There was like the, the, black, the black sheep. So, and in 2019, if I remember correctly, then Michael Hoffman joined them. And now we are already three, yeah. like uh, three black sheeps. And, and eventually we maybe change the color and we will fit in into this group. And I think this for us is obviously a huge reward to, to have now three people there being listened to and, and working with these superb people. Yeah. Uh, 
to get ready, we need you know we need infrastructure. Lutetium PSMA. It's not it's not just a hormone drug. It's not just a pill. Uh, could you, what, what is the take-home message for urologists and colleagues listen to this? What should they should they bring home to their hospital? I think the most important part is really uh, uh, to to get nuclear medicine on the table of the MDTs, mm. being really making sure that, that they are there. Mm. They also they buy in. It's mm. very important. Uh, it, it's fully right that the lutetium PSMA is not as simple as like let's say a conventional drug which you put in up your shelf you keep it for three months five months six months and then you eventually take it out when you need it it's 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 logistically let's say uh, a little bit more challenging you know because you have a half-life and and you have only a certain limited of time where you can really inject it you need to have a certain protection area overall i have to say uh, there are many countries for example in germany where we have 20 plus years experience and uh, we at enm also try actually with a very recent uh, article which is actually called how to set up a synostic center mm -hmm. yeah. uh, try to give advice yeah. so i think in the end if a urologist comes back from eu or an oncologist comes back from eu says i really want to want to buy in into this program it's important to reach out to the local guys yeah. make them aware maybe also pressure them that they do this mm -hmm. and then you can always tell them look man, the, your, your society enm has just done a couple of papers mm -hmm. read them yeah. and if not reach out to them do the um the nuclear medicine in Europe, do they have the capacity to take on this very large population within prostate? So it's an excellent question. It's obviously one of the major challenges, but I think uh, uh, on, the, on the country level, but also on, the, on an uh, European level, we are really trying to really uh, yeah, establish this framework. There are a couple of things like the framework, uh, the policy framework uh, initiative. There are ways to really invest into infrastructure, and I'm very optimistic. It's not that it's a sure shot. It's definitely uh, asking for a lot of investment, a lot of uh, buy-in from everyone, but I think it's absolutely feasible. And I also think that, like many things, it's not going to be like, you know, from zero to 100, no. it will be a, a transition. Yeah. And I think actually prostate cancer is giving us an opportunity because it's a high incidence, high volume disease, mm. uh, uh, patient number wise, and this gives us actually the time to get ready. Mm. And if everything works out fine, I also hope that eventually colorectal cancer, mm. breast cancer, and other high volume lung cancer, high volume uh, tumors will find their way into diagnostics. And, and then I think prostate cancer, with a very supportive uh, urologist and urologist, I think we are ready to, to actually get in shape. For also for the other therapies. Thank you, Ken Herman. Thank you very much, and uh, looking forward to see you again yeah. very soon. Yeah, have a nice congress. Thank you. <laughs>
because we have false positive results, which we should take into account. Certainly, if the PSMA is suddenly positive at the location, you don't expect. We had, for instance, a patient with a nodule in the thyroid. Yeah, it was a benign thyroid tumor, not a metastatic disease. So be careful. But once you have it, it might change your treatment a lot, and this is important. So in your point of view, where should we position PSMA PIT? Well, I think the first place is in patients who are having high-risk disease at diagnosis without having had any treatment at all. This is based on uh, on the, the pro-PSMA trial which was published in Lancet a year ago, who clearly showed that if you have really high-risk patients, eh, so glizonate or more PSAs above 20 and T3, T4 tumors, if you perform PSMA PET-CT that you will find metastatic disease in more or less 30% more then you will find it on conventional imaging. Mm. This might change your, your viewpoint on treatment. But the backside is, what I always say to my younger assistants, don't make this man too sick. It's not because you have a PSMA PET CT lesion that you should consider them as incurable. But probably to cure them, your treatment has to be more aggressive or more multimodal mm. modality treatment. We mm. call it the full Monty, like the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the second, the second uh, uh, indication, I think the most important one, is patients who had had a radical prostatectomy mm-hmm. and they have a rising PSA. Mm. First of all, you should not wait until the PSA is high enough to perform a PSMA PET-CT because otherwise you lose a window of cure. But certainly in Gleason score 8, 9 and 10, you can perform it once the PSA is 0.2. Because there are, there are three things, that, four things that can happen. Whether you find nothing, but then you still have to go for radiotherapy to the prostate and the lymph nodes. If you find a local relapse in the prostate bed, then there's clear evidence, uh, very recent evidence too, that that giving a higher dose to that particular spot will cure more patients. I'm not talking overall survival, I don't like it, because like I said, you can put yourself on a heart-lung machine and you will live also one month longer. This is overall survival. It's about cure, because when you're cured, you don't have to worry about prostate cancer anymore. So mentally it's important and it's about quality of life. So if you boost that lesion, you you see that you cure more patients and it's a very, very highly significant difference of more than 25%. So you have to do it. If you find on your PSMA PET-CT lymph nodes in the pelvic region, please do not consider these patients as metastatic. They are they have positive lymph nodes in the pelvis. It's N disease. N stands for nodal. It's not metastatic. Whether the patient is too old to do anything, but then you shouldn't have done a PSMA PET-CT neither. Mm. But if you do a PSMA PET-CT in a, in, in, a, in a fit patient and you find this, go for multimodality treatment. Salvage surgery, radiotherapy to the nodes with the boost, mm. with some form of androgen deprivation therapy, of course. Second line, uh, uh, hormones are not reimbursed yet in this indication, so I will not discuss that. Mm-hmm. But but giving these patients only hormones, I think it's a medical error. Mm-hmm. Whether do you not, you do nothing, mm-hmm. because the guy is too old, mm-hmm. but if you want to aim for mm-hmm. cure, you have to go for multimodality treatment, and in that, radiotherapy and surgery are key players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then number three are patients who have been treated maximally to the prostate and the lymph nodes and they develop again a PSA relapse. Then you have to check whether these patients are metastatic or not. And if they're metastatic, what is the volume of the metastatic disease? We call it oligometastatic, which is low volume, five or less. 
or polymeter static, which is all the rest. So 7, 10, 20, 50 lesions. When these patients in the castration-sensitive setting have oligometastatic progression, there's clear evidence that you can postpone significantly the need for palliative androgen deprivation therapy. This has been shown in randomized trials, in non-randomized trials, and this mounts to more than five years in some trials. At first, it, it saves money. I know that for some guideline panel members, uh, palliative ADT-free survival is what they consider a weak endpoint. Mm -hmm. But for patients, it's a very important endpoint because you, you at, at first, you don't induce any toxicity with this modern uh, serotactic body radiotherapy, as we call it. And number two, you spare the patients of the toxicities of palliative androgen deprivation therapy. And androgen deprivation therapy induces weight gain, osteoporosis, uh, lack of uh, libido, hot flushes, mm -hmm. risk of depression, emotional ability, fatigue, and so on and so on. It's not like taking a little candy. No. Okay? So, in you, and, and the, the good thing is now that we, we think maybe combining this with some systemic treatment period, a short period, might be good, and therefore randomized trials are running throughout Europe. So, mm -hmm. this is good news. Mm -hmm. And while it was nearly impossible to do that years ago, it's it's possible now. Everybody or most of the people are on the ship to study it. It's also known in other cancers outside urology. Yeah? So if you read the Sabre Comet, the use of serotactic body radiotherapy is a major player in, in, in survival gain of more than of, of 22 months, which is extremely significant. And then the new thing to end with, and this is a difficult one, mm -hmm. is the, what we call the castration refractory disease setting. In, in this castration refractory disease setting, you have what we call non-metastatic disease, unconventional imaging. Using modern imaging like PSMA PET-CT and maybe also FDG PET-CT shows that this non-metastatic disease is something that might exist, but surely not as much as we think. And it's impressed now, and for me it's the, the publication of the year till now. A group of China said, okay, in patients who have oligoprogressive disease, being, being castration refractory, oligoprogressive disease, meaning five or less lesions on PSMA and or FDG PET-CT, we're going to target these lesions with SBRT, serotactic body radiotherapy, defined as a high dose and a low number of fractions. Because then you kill mostly the vasculature of the metastatic spot and not the metastasis itself. So the metastasis has no uh, repair mechanisms again. That. What is the so a huge response rate? Almost everyone except one patient did not respond. So if you would have a pharmaceutical product having these results, you could buy, you could buy Mauritius and the Seychelles at once. Uh, it's atoxic and it prolongs the time to the next systemic treatment line for almost two years. So I think this is one of the most exciting new um, new aspects of uh, telegnostics. So, voilà. This what is my viewpoint. Of, yeah. What kind of trial do we need in order to, to position? Very uh, good. Well, the, the trial, well, there are a lot of trials, but I, I think it's difficult to discuss somebody else's trial. Mm -hmm. I mean, what would you do? Well, we started the Sparkle. Mm -hmm. Sparkle is in the castration sensitive setting. Patients get, get PSMA PET CT, all mm -hmm. of them. And if they have five or less metastatic spots, then we randomize between metastasis directed treatment with, with SBRT or surgery alone, 
versus the same with one month of ADT? Because we know from older data of the group of Patrick Berkovic that adding one month of ADT might increase the sensitivity of the tumor cell to radiation versus the same with six months of ADT and six months of ARTA, in this case enzalutamide, because you have to choose one, you cannot mix everything together. Another trial in the CRPC setting, a prospective trial, is called Medcare. Medcare run, uh, there was a phase two non-randomized trial, delivering metastasis-directed treatment to patients in the CRPC setting, but not like with the Chinese one, but with overt metastatic disease on conventional imaging. Yeah? So CT was positive, bone scan was positive. In these patients, PSMA capacity was blinded to see whether it's the PSMA who drives progression or not. We don't know yet because the, the study recruited only the patients within 10 months. It, it was a very large success, but the results are too good and we have too few events to unblind the results. So maybe next year. Mm. Wow. Maybe next year. Mm. And based on these results, phase three will start also next year. So, but next year, if you see me, I would like to give you the results of this Medcare. They are, they are more impressive than ever thought. You're yeah. more than welcome back to the Eternostic Talks podcast yeah. next and, year. And it's in Milano, huh? Yeah, it's in Milano. It's in, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe even do a deep dive into all of your ideas. Yeah. Great, I would love to. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for I joining hope you us. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. nice talking to you. Okay. Yeah. We just found Louise Emmett. Welcome to the Diagnostic Talks podcast once again. Thank you so much. And you are here in Europe. I am. I am. Actually, it's the first trip to Europe since the COVID pandemic started. So very excited to be here. So you you came to the EAU to do what? Um, actually, I came to the EAU um, to because we got a prize for the primary trial. So we got best scientific paper for European Urology for 2021, which was very exciting for the for the whole team. Really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the primary trial? Yeah, so the primary trial was a multi-site trial that we did where we were really looking to see whether PSMA PET, just a pelvic-only PSMA PET, could actually improve the diagnosis of prostate cancer. So we took men who had had an MRI and were going for a biopsy and we slotted in a PSMA PET in between and then we looked to see whether it actually improved uh, diagnostic accuracy. The primary endpoint of the trial was whether negative predictive value could improve uh, from MRI to the combination of PSMA and MRI and, and in fact what we found was it, it improved really significantly so negative predictive value uh, improved from 70% uh, with um, MRI alone up to uh, 86% with the combination uh, and sensitivity actually improved from 83% up to 97% um, and you know that's really nice but what it actually means is it means it's safe to not biopsy um, a significant proportion of the patients who have abnormal MRI and would normally be slated for biopsy. And that would be the future for patient. Yeah, yeah. it would be amazing because you know the in in the primary cohort the false negative rate was 17% with MRI but we got it down to 3% looking at the combination. So it means we don't miss significant cancers if we use the two together uh, and, and now what we're doing is we're actually doing a randomized trial um, around Australia uh, called Primary 2 and we're randomizing 660 men to look whether in fact adding a really expensive modality is cost effective, uh, whether it really does reduce biopsies and whether it's safe. 
Cool, nice. Very nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're also very involved in the NCP trial. Yeah, that's yeah. also pretty exciting this week, actually. We've just randomised our final patient. So we have 162 out of 162 patients randomised on the NCP trial. And NCP is a, um, a, a phase two multi-site trial. We're running around Australia uh, in men who have really nasty, um, high-risk metastatic uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer who are going on enzalutamide. Um, so we randomise the patients to either enzalutamide treatment alone or enzalutamide plus either two or four doses of lutetia PSMA. Wow. Oh, wow. So what, what can we expect the results? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, primary endpoint of the NCP trial is actually progression-free survival, and we need a lot of events. We need 150 out of 160 events for our hazard ratio of 0.625. Um, you know, these patients have uh, a 5% five-year survival, uh, mm. so it's appalling, and, and unfortunately I think we'll be fairly rapid in getting a lot of events. Whether we're going to get 150 out of 160 fast, I'm not sure. So that's a watch this space. I, I'm hoping that we'll have those those results available in 2023, but maybe, uh, you know, for the benefit of the patients, hopefully it'll be a lot longer than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we will wait for the results and we will, of course, you are welcome back to the Diagnostic Talks podcast <laughs> when you haven't had the results of the trial. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah. Look yeah. forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Louise, for your time. Have, mm -hmm. and have a nice Congress. Thank you. Um, and I, I will. Congratulations once again on the press. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Terragnostic Talks podcast once again. Stefano Fanti. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here again. My pleasure to be EAU Amsterdam, finally in person. Yes, finally in person. Uh, how are you today, busy days? It's a busy day, but as always at EAU, very interesting, learning a lot. And, uh, good day. Okay, great. Yeah. What of, um, <clears throat> one of the most important things within diagnostics are imaging. You've been trying to educate uh, the urologists for years. <laughs> they have been somewhat conservative. Are they still? Yes, they, yes, they are definitely conservative. There is uh, ongoing discussion, well, not about Terranostic, I have to admit the fact that for therapy, there's no discussion about the fact that you need imaging mm -hmm. to identify in vivo the target. That's very clear to everybody. Mm -hmm. I guess there is a full agreement on that. The point is that the more it gets PSMA available, the more people start talking about confirmation, which is something which is a sort of resistance. That's to say, if you see something with a method which is more sensitive, you cannot pretend to confirm with a less sensitive method. So I guess we still have to educate them, I mean, <laughs> politely educate them, that if we have a, a better approach, you cannot pretend that with the worst one you see the same, otherwise it wouldn't be the best. No. So how should we educate them? Oh, being very kind uh, and try to making them understanding uh, that sometimes, uh, I mean, I, I don't need to trust in whatever I see. So I'm against uh, the positivity rate. To say everything that lights up in a PSMA scan has to be seen as a lesion. This is not correct at all. I mean, you have to be careful. You have to be very skilled at reporting your findings. So don't uh, over-report, uh, which is super dangerous. But at the same time, if you have a patient, uh, let's say BCR, increasing PSA, but still low level with completely negative bone scan and CT, and you see something intense at a bone, 
the most likely thing is that it's connected. And you should take into account uh, of treating on the basis of that. In some cases, you can search for a confirmation. I mean, you can make an MRI, which is fantastic. But in other cases, you cannot say, okay, it's only PSMA, so I don't take uh, into account uh, and I don't treat the patient accordingly. Otherwise, why have you requested my scan and my report? So it, it's a mutual education, and it goes a lot through participating MDT and discussing the cases with them. That's very important because we learn each other. I mean, I, I'm joking when I say I have to educate them. Of course, <laughs> they can educate me much more than I could. Um, but it's a, a mutual advantage, recognizing the fact that if you have something more sensitive, uh, it's clear that there will always be something that you see with that method only. Yeah. And you cannot pretend to put a needle every time or to wait that CT gets positive because it will be just too late and you will waste months and the patient is not having any beneficial effect on it. And that's actually something I realized during the talks that they are now talking about treating an early stage salvage radiation therapy, salvage surgery, and maybe the value of the early PSMA therapy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To many extent, let's mm. say, okay, we, we all know that radiation oncologists want to do salvage radiation therapy as soon as possible, mm. okay? Uh, but at the same time, we are routinely using PSMA PET to be sure that what you irradiate is uh, the entire area where the recurrence uh, has happened. That's to say, if you have a lymph node which is outside the normal volume that you would treat, it's clearly an added value because you can try to eradicate the disease, you may cure the disease, but if you don't trust in the one lymph node outside of the classic volume of treatment, then you don't get an advantage. Uh, and that's very important, especially because uh, so early there is no other methods that could demonstrate. I mean, it's very unlikely that you have a very enlarged lymph node. It's not uh, the, the most uh, frequent situation. Uh, for many years, there has been an assumption, maybe a misassumption, that all PSMA tracers are more or less the same. Uh, and the last six months, has been a scientific discussion and adapted some are more equal than others, do you agree? <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny, but at the same time very intriguing question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some PSMA that are more PSMA than others, I would say, rather. <laughs> That's to say, apart from the physical property of the isotope, you know, uh, mm -hmm. gallium is different from fluoride and it's clearly different from technetium and from copper and so on. So we're mainly discussing about gallium and fluoride, but at the same time, there are different uh, fluorinated compounds, you know, you have PR1, you have 1007, you have array, you have several. And they have different characteristics. I mean, PSMA is a basket concept. So for some indication, just like, uh, um, let's say, being a patient eligible for therapy, then it's enough uh, that you demonstrate the presence uh, of the receptor. So to me, essentially, every PSMA tracer could be okay. Even the technician could be fine to candidate a patient to therapy. But when it comes to document, uh, for example, the presence of a distant metastasis in a patient with high risk uh, at presentation, then you should never overstage the patient, uh, uh, risking uh, to call a faint bone uptake uh, as a metastasis. And in this case, the tracer that has the less unspecific bone uptake is more interesting to me, because the background, it's a problem. 
So if I have a tracer with a very relevant, non-specific uptake, and it's not me telling that, of course, there's a lot of literature and studies demonstrating that this, uh, you know, occasional findings, incidental findings, or findings which are keen to be called as a possible meth, and at the very end they are not, uh, they are really worrying a lot, because uh, you can, in this case, uh, do a great problem to the clinicians and to the patients because in this case uh, you should demonstrate that there is something. So be careful and choose wisely and pick the best tracer if possible which is not necessarily the same for every indication. So it's also related to the reason. I, I, I don't mean that you need five different PSMA. I mean it's not a brewery when you have different <laughs> sorts of PSMA for... No. But take into account uh, that it could make a real difference, and especially I'm, I'm considering this issue of staging the hybrid patients. I don't want to call any false positive real development. Okay, uh, maybe you have answered this, but but uh, you're trying to educate. As we said, you are trying to educate the urologist about using PSMA and the value of PSMA, but. Uh, do we now need to train them or tell them to use the right tracer or ask for the right tracer? Oh, no, no, no. I guess that this is absolutely a due of nuclear medicine physician. I mean, I, I wouldn't dare to tell a neurologist which robot to use and which is the approach. <laughs> um, but I guess at the same time it's our clear responsibility to make a wise choice. That's to say, don't accept uh, as nuclear medicine to use uh, the one you can most easily get access to or the cheaper one, which is even worse, or the one that is allowing you to scan uh, more patients. Okay, patient throughput is important, the economy is relevant, but at the same time, what is most important is the accuracy, because the patient will benefit from high sensitivity and high specificity, not from the budgetary increase of my department. So, first of all, go for the quality, go for accuracy, and then we can discuss about uh, logistical uh, and other issues, but uh, uh, it, it's so important that the nuclear medicine, together with the really pharmacists and physicists and so on, put the right decision. And now, if we are going that far that we actually agree on how to proceed with this, what's next then? <laughs> what's next about PSMA? That's very interesting. Um, I guess there is still room for uh, some far application. I mean, we have very well established the application of biochemical recurrence, persistence, staging, and so on. Um, I just read some initial report. I'm not a fan of using PSMA to identify the primary cancer. I guess that the rate of fixed positive is too high and even the sensitivity is not so good. But at the same time, I think there is room in selected number of patients to avoid, for example, unnecessary biopsy when the risk of aggressive malignancy is very low. So for example, if you use PETMR and you have a low pirate score and on top of that you have no intense uptake PSMA, patients may be suitable for a watchful approach rather than putting needles, which is never such a great experience. Um, that could be a further application. And another application could definitely be in the field of characterization of metastatic or more sensitive prostate cancer. The definition of high and low volume has all been based on old-fashioned imaging that we should definitely work on. So that's another application still to establish. And um, non-metastatic CRPC, I guess we are already almost there, let's say, the non-metastatic CRPC can probably be cascaded 
classified in the majority of cases as metastatic CRDC with implication for the therapeutic point of view. So I guess we are almost to the entire spectrum of <laughs> prostate cancer patients. We are pretty much so. Yeah, pretty much so. Yeah. Yeah. so. But if, if patients could, uh, could prevent themselves from getting biopsies, then it would be really good. Well, again, of course, it, it's a small part of the mm -hmm. patients. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, I get the impression that maybe in some cases uh, it could be done. Special cases. Yeah. Yeah. Selected ones uh, where, or if a patient is not uh, suitable for radical prostatectomy due to some comorbidity and so on. So maybe try to, I mean, ultimate diagnosis uh, with pathology has been seen as the gold standard, mm -hmm. which is true. But it's not mandatory in every single patient to definitely get it. So in some cases you can spur and you can uh, reduce the invasivity and the comorbidity related to that, which is not possible. Thank you, Stefano, for your time. Once again, my pleasure. And again, great to see you. Declan Murphy, welcome to Terragnostic Talks podcast. Finally. Well, thank you. Nice to see you in person. Yes, meeting in person. That's fun. Uh, Declan, you are my, how to say, my podcast partner in crime. Yes, I love the podcasting industry just like you. And I love Terragnostic's uh, podcast. It's on my Spotify favorites list. So when you post new content, I'm always listening. Oh, you do? Yeah. Yes. And you have your own podcast as well. You can see it at GeoCast. Yeah, GeoCast. Yeah. We set this up a couple of years ago and our focus is GU Oncology. Yeah. So prostate cancer is quite a bit of that, of course. And for us, uh, my group at Peter McCallum Cancer Center, as you well know, are yeah. very interested in um, molecular imaging and theranostics as a space. So yes, GUCAST does feature a lot of discussion about uh, PSMA theranostics in particular. Yeah, it's that's my podcast list as well. Yes. Yeah, yesterday, yesterday morning I took a walk in Amsterdam with the canals and listened to the last one. Oh, did Episode you? Of, the, of the ENACT. Yeah, yeah. ENACT. Do not ENACT. Do not ENACT. No, no, that's right. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Uh, do you like my microphones? I must say, yeah. you're very flashy here with your Rode wireless microphones. Uh, you know, yeah. I bought them on your suggestion. Uh, did you? Yeah, <laughs> Rode are a great Australian company, and they yeah. do make really high-quality audio yeah. equipment. And uh, a lot of it is based for the, 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 you know, the amateur bloggers and vloggers like you and I, uh, Gustav. But we'll see what your listeners think. Does the sound good on these little microphones? But um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they will be excellent. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You have traveled here to Europe from Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Which way did you take? Uh, we came through Doha this time, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, no matter how you do it, it's a long trip from Melbourne to Europe. So it's about 24 hours uh, door to door. Yeah. Uh, so the first leg is 14 hours up to Doha or Abu Dhabi or Dubai. They're our favourite routes, yeah. uh, and then seven hours into Amsterdam. But you know, we're used to these long flights. Actually, I get a lot of work done on the flights as well. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what uh, what will you do here at the EAU Congress? Well, look, first and foremost, uh, it's the first time we've had this Congress for a few years, yeah. and it, it's literally so exciting mm -hmm. to see some people I haven't seen in person for so long. Uh, so that whole value of attending a scientific conference to meet people, uh, just, well, the organized meetings, but especially the impromptu ones in a session or in a corridor or in the trade area, is just bringing me so much joy this week. Yeah. So that's first and foremost. And, of course, that's a highlight of every annual, every major scientific meeting. But for this one, because it's been so long, you can see the excitement in people's faces mm -hmm. that were catching up for the first time. Uh, but second, of course, this is a wonderful scientific meeting. EAU is my favorite um, meeting of all 
it's the meeting I literally ne never miss because of the the content uh, as well as all those uh, interpersonal catch-ups and and this meeting is no different we're seeing some fantastic highlights in this meeting and uh, congratulations to the EAU for uh, putting it on and uh, attracting such a good crowd tomorrow morning you will present your new trial uh, the lutectomy mm -hmm. that could be a little bit proactive yes <laughs> in his name please tell us a little bit about the lutectomy yeah lutectomy so for your listeners who I know are interested in, in theranostics uh, obviously uh, they are very aware that the theranostic revolution in prostate cancer has been a very exciting past two or three years and uh, I know you have featured some of my colleagues and other Australians on your podcast and my close friend and colleague Michael Hoffman uh, works with me at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre nuclear medicine physician and he has led uh, the, the a lot of the prospective work we've done in the very advanced prostate cancer space so the initial phase two trial we published in Lancet Oncology in 2018 uh, was led by Michael and uh, some of our medical oncology colleagues Janine Sandu, John Violet, uh, one of our radiation oncologists who passed away unfortunately but th these are the people who set that trial up and that led to the the big randomized trials the therapy trial that you've had on the podcast and the vision trial which you've featured Oliver Sartor on your, on your podcast so we now know clearly in 2021 uh, uh, when those trials read out that these men with very advanced cancer in a randomized setting um, benefit from lutetium PSMA mm. they have very good quality of life tolerability and there is now a survival benefit for these men so the obvious question those of us working in prostate cancer have when we see something being tolerable and effective in fire disease is what about earlier and earlier and earlier because it's a, a big disease space it's very broad prostate cancer so there are ongoing trials of lutetium PSMA in the earlier castration resistance space and also in the newly diagnosed metastatic space so go forward and forward and forward and it brings you to lutectomy which is the trial we're reading out here or the initial results so this brings it forward to before men have metastatic prostate cancer these are men who are suitable for surgery or radiotherapy to try and control their localized cancer but the backdrop to that Gustav is that a very significant number of the men with the higher risk prostate cancers the high-grade cancers fail uh, they get through their surgery they get through their radiotherapy uh, whichever they may choose but they have like you know 40 50 percent biochemical recurrence rates so for decades now this has been an unmet need how do we do better uh, to improve these outcomes to lower the biochemical and so traditionally what, what you do in any of these cancer spaces is either do an adjuvant study or neoadjuvant neoadjuvant is very attractive but to our great disappointment over the past 20 years none of the neoadjuvant strategies have improved the outcomes they've all been based around hormone therapy androgen deprivation therapy plus or minus all sorts of other stuff but nothing's worked so we thought let's try lutetium PSMA let's not go for hormone therapy type approaches let's just uh, uh, take a do a phase one two study 20 men and offer them one or two cycles of lutetium PSMA 617 um, five gigabecrels mm. uh, and then six weeks later uh, we'll do the surgery as planned mm. um, so the, tomorrow uh, in the session it'll be in the past when we uh, listened to this we we presented the um, uh, interim data on the first 10 men uh, mm. the, t the first 10 men because they received one cycle mm. uh, and if the if it was tolerable we, then we move into the second cycle mm. so we were, we're already past that we fully recruited the trial mm. uh, and we're, I'm about to operate on the final patient in mm. about two months time um, but we report uh, the outcomes from these first 10 patients oh. here great uh, so they still have the 
the prostate there. So it potentially is a quite heavy dose to the prostate, or? Yes, so for the selection criteria, we use some classic urology criteria, like yeah. they had a high uh, pathological grade on, yeah. on uh, or a high PSA, etc. so-called high risk or unfavorable intermediate risk. But mm -hmm. because we love using uh, PSMA itself as an inclusion criteria, mm -hmm. uh, we set the bar quite high. They had to have an STV max of 20 or greater, either in the prostate or the lymph nodes. Yeah. So, you know, that makes sense to us, doesn't mm -hmm. it? This is an imaging-guided, personalized medicine approach to say, we proved this already uh, in the therapy trial and indeed in pro-PSMA, we showed higher SUV max is associated with higher grade, but also would, it predicts a better outcome, mm -hmm. both in the therapy trial and the vision trial. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, let's not just, you know, give it to men with SUV max, of, you know. So we set that bar quite high. Mm -hmm. uh, and the median uh, SUV max we report here is 29. So the, mm -hmm. they have a big target. They mm -hmm. have a big juicy tumor yeah. in the prostate or actually in a few of them in the lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. um, and the primary endpoint of the study was dosimetry. Yeah. So we, we, uh, we wanted to see what was going to be the maximum absorbed radiation dose uh, using a, a three-time point um, uh, uh, technique to determine the dosimetry. So we report that primary endpoint here. And what did we report? We reported uh, that it was about 50 gray. 50 uh, so gray. a single cycle, mm -hmm. five gigabac rolls, which is not that high a dose. Mm -hmm. uh, we measured doses, median doses, about 50. Uh, mm -hmm. 50 overall, 48, 50 in the uh, prostate or the mm -hmm. lymph nodes. So uh, is that a meaningful dose? We think it is. We think that's a clinically meaningful dose, even allowing for the limitations of dosimetry in small organs, partial voluming, all these sorts of business that you're an expert on. Um, it's clinically meaningful. Uh, but the next question is, what about the secondary endpoints? Uh, did we see that it affected the cancer? Was the cancer wiped out? Uh, or what happened to the PSA levels? Did they come down? So I'll, I'll summarize those for your listeners and, and, what, and viewers. Um, we showed that, first of all, yeah, the PSA levels did come down, which is nice to see. So there's an effect. Um, overall, the median dropped by about 43%. Uh, so quite a good graph we, we present here showing PSA levels coming down. We showed an imaging response because all these men got a PET scan before we did surgery uh, and we saw a very nice imaging response in most patients, not all patients. Um, but in the tumor, uh, when we take these prostates out, and this is why lutectomy is provocative, <laughs> but I still have a job. Uh, Michael Hoffman came up with that name, lutectomy, by the way. It was very provocative. I could see the, him staring. I think we should call it lutectomy. I'm gonna, but um, we're not out of business because uh, all these patients still had plenty of active cancer in them. Mm. Nobody had a pathological complete response or minimal disease left. But 80% of them, and I show an example here, had treatment effect. Clearly something's going on. And you can see the PSMA switching off on the PET scan. The surgery is very easy. Uh, that's the other important consideration for us. If we're, if we're going to be giving 50-odd gray into a big juicy tumor in the periphery of the prostate or in a lymph node, you know, is it going to be easy to do that surgery? You know, or, or we, are we going to see radiation effect? Mm. But thankfully what we report here, and I show some videos of this as well, the surgery is very straightforward. It's amazing that these have had a big dose of uh, radiation, but yet the, it seems very targeted. It's very confined in the tumor, so the nearby tissues were not uh, affected. So put all that together, you know, what did, what did I propose at the end of this talk? Um, and although it's in the practice-changing plenary, I made it very clear that this is not a practice-changing readout here. Please do not rush off to, uh, you know, buy some <laughs> lutetium prior to your prostatectomy. Uh, but it clearly shows that you can get a significant dose in. The sec it's very safe from a lutetium perspective and a surgery perspective. And these secondary endpoints do, I think, give us some insight to say, yeah, we need to uh, do a little bit more here. So what next? Well, 
cohort B, the second half of lutectomy, as I say, is fully recruited. They've all had their lutetium. The last guy had it this week, and the surgery will all be done by September 2022, uh, September this year. So we'll read that one out, you know, in the first couple of months of uh, next year, either at ASCO GU or here at the EAU in, in Milan. Um, and we'll publish the full data at that time in a, yeah. in a synchronous paper. So is that going to be the practice? I don't think so. Um, because I think, uh, as we thought beforehand, probably you need to give more cycles. Mm. Probably we should give a bigger dose. Um, probably we should wait a bit longer after mm. lutetium. Because Michael Huffman and co. will say to me, look, six weeks is too short. We, The way this therapy works, maybe three months' time would be better mm. or six months' time. Mm. Uh, and what about, finally, would you combine it with ADT? That's mm. the one thing we didn't want to do because, you know, you get a beautiful signal when you just do the lutetium. But it may well be that that might be a direction that gets explored. Um, so I think the next two or three years we will see people look back at lutectomy and say, yep, all those things I mentioned, safe, you know, significant dose goes in, it's uh, interesting endpoints, and we should be more ambitious uh, for, the, for, for lutectomy too. We should, uh, we should ramp it up in one of, those, one of those ways I've just suggested to you there. You should also be very patient, shouldn't you, going into the new adjuvant prior to radical prostectomy. So the follow-up would be quite, even though high risk, quite long. Yes. In order to see through for phase two or phase three trials. Yeah. yeah, I think so because the, the more important endpoints for us to determine is this a clinically meaningful thing that might change practice mm-hmm. uh, in this high-risk prostate cancer population are things like biochemical recurrence-free survival. So two years later, what mm-hmm. will that? And we'll follow these patients mm-hmm. to determine that. But in a randomized thing, if you showed that biochemical recurrence was less, that's suddenly a clinically meaningful endpoint, but not the most impressive for us. It would be what about metastasis-free survival? what about five years later or eight years later mm-hmm. by giving lutetium up front are we reducing the number of men who get distant disease um, but those studies will take quite a while for mm-hmm. localised prostate cancer mm-hmm. that's that's the difference between very advanced cancer you get the endpoints quickly and localised cancer it's a while mm-hmm. um, but I think we're excited enough uh, with this initial experience to say mm-hmm. we should do that we should yes. plan those trials and be patient as you said be patient yeah. 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 thank you Declan well thank you and nice to see you all in person good luck with the podcast <laughs> or video cast as it is now. Yeah, it's yeah, exciting, yeah. isn't it? Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. See you. Last day of the Congress. We are leaving for the airport within an hour. What, by the way, is crazy at the airport. So probably we're standing on a queue for the rest of the afternoon. But uh, what do you think, Lisa? Four days in Amsterdam. Four days in Amsterdam, but I'm actually more curious on what your take is. It, this is your first AAU. Yeah, this is my first AAU. You, uh, you've been here probably for almost 20 years. Uh, yeah, when did you start? You're so young. <laughs> no, uh, I really like the sessions. Uh, I, I, I love the sessions. You know, they start with uh, like a statement uh, or, or, or a patient case. Uh, then you have someone presenting a yes, agree with that or a no I don't agree with that and then you then they follow a, a quite scientific discussion maybe not a, not a conclusion but but it's a, a scientific discussion about the statement or uh, about a, 
uh, clinical case. I, I love this type of scientific interaction at this meeting. The pros and cons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've always been really um, used a lot within urology, actually. And then uh, whenever things are adapted, mm. it kind of floats away and we look into the data again. So I guess right now when we're taking the temperature on theranostics, we, we still have issues. Mm. So prostate cancer has always been a very complicated uh, disease to actually handle in, in all settings, over treatment, under treatment, decision on treatment for cure, or decisions on treatment for endocrine uh, therapies. So, so actually, I mean, it's become even more complicated right now, adding in the new imaging on PSMA, which is highly adopted actually. We saw a raise the hand in one of the sessions on Theranostics, and two-thirds of the of the audience actually I would, would, say more. would use, maybe more even, yeah. yeah. And so I would say that they would use PSMA as an imaging agent mm -hmm. to know more about the patients. Exactly. To have more information mm -hmm. to make a decision, a decision upon that. Yeah. yeah. What they're struggling with right now, and, and most agree on that, is that this is a good imaging profile, but how to use it, they're struggling a little bit, and in what setting they should use mm -hmm. it. So it's very, very interesting. I look, I'm, I'm looking forward, but I think they're not as conservative as you actually flag they would be. Yeah. Um, no, they're I, not. No, no, they have uh, they have stretched themselves towards uh, uh, bringing on PSMA in prostate cancer. Yeah, and it's a strong scientific community. It's, yeah. it's a scientific discussion, mm -hmm. and I love that. What I really took home was that um, looking into the patients and what benefits patients should be the focus yeah. of every treatment decisions going ahead mm -hmm. with the treatment of the disease. And that's actually a very good way forward, isn't it? I yeah. Mean, yeah, you should always put focus on the patients. Mm. That should always be number one. Mm. Yeah. And we will be back after the summer. Mm -hmm. Yes, we will with new episodes, so please watch out. And if you have something, if you want to reach out to us, please send an email to mm -hmm. podcast at samnordic.se. Podcast at samnordic.se. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you.